Hello and welcome to the Oi Let's Talk podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Gemma. Two friends talking fitness, mindset, business and everything else in between. We really mean everything. Expect banter, education and organised chaos. Your new podcast besties. Oi, let's talk season two. We're kicking off Woo-hoo. season two with our very first guest, Megan, the psychologist. Megan is a psychologist from Melbourne focusing on a holistic approach, more specifically nutrition and psychology, which we're really excited to talk about today. So welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. This is going to be awesome because I don't know much about you at all, which I kind of did on purpose because yeah. I like to use these times to learn as well. So take it away. Give us a little synopsis about who you are, what you do, who you work with. So I'm a psychologist, like Gemma mentioned. I actually live in Inverloch. I grew up in Melbourne. Did you make the drive from Inverloch here today? Yeah. Oh, she's a dedicated queen. We are very grateful for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wouldn't miss it. It's so fun. Um, Yeah, so I've been working as a psychologist for a while now. I mainly work with clients who experience trauma. Um, and I really take a holistic approach to working with them. So incorporating nutrition, somatic-based exercises, Mm. so where people store it in their bodies and things like that. And I have my traditional learnings of CBT and the more cognitive-based approaches as well that I sort of weave into it. But I love what I do. It's such a privilege working with the clients that I get to work with. You have such a calming presence as well. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Compared to our chaotic energy. (laughs) You're going to balance us out perfectly today. Um, When you say nutritional psychology, what Mm. does that actually look like? Yeah, so it really depends on the person, but there's so much research now to suggest that what we eat really impacts Mm. how we feel and particularly our gut microbiome as well. And the state of our microbiome. So I always ask people, what their diet looks like, Mm. their history as well, if they've ever fluctuated in and out of disordered eating as well. That's really important to know. And just what they're consuming, it really, really matters when we're looking at mental health. I love this because I was literally saying to Gem in the car park just before, I was like, I hope we talk about like gut health and all of that. So today's F is going to be so good. Can I ask, how did you get into your specialty, like the niche that you're currently working in? Because obviously your traditional studies would have been an overview of psychology yeah 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 it was actually a bit harder because I was so passionate about the holistic side very early on and Mm. as you study psychology it's six years at uni and it's yeah it's more a traditional process I suppose so you do an undergraduate and it's just all the background information lots of statistics and things like that as well which I didn't love but you got to do it (laughs) you got to understand it through (laughs) And then I actually took two years off in between my undergrad and postgrad and I became a PT. And Amazing. Are you a PT girl yeah, as you well? You are perfect. Funny. You were the perfect first guest. <laughs> Where did guest. you find this I know, trick? absolute <laughs> weapon. I love this so much. I love this. Yeah. You're perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that was, like, I always knew I was so passionate about having a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. So I focused on the exercise side of things and really develop skills in communicating and working with clients because that's something that you don't get in your psychology degree until you reach your fifth year. And it's wow. a long way to go if you can't talk to people or you don't have those people skills. So, yeah, Did you was, do a lot of placement in your psychology degree? 
You do it in your fifth and sixth year. Right, okay, so yeah. they really push it out to the end. Yeah, yeah. so you do a 1,000 hours wow. of placement and you try and get it in all different kinds of settings. Yeah. yeah. So did you have a turning point where you were like, okay, no, I want to go more the holistic approach, like after doing your PT cert? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a uni that was created. Um, I went to it when in its second year, I think. Yeah. And it was more that holistic approach. They were doing really cool things with their research because a big part of your postgraduate course is you have to research mm. and you have to look at something that you're interested in and write a thesis on it. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to make sure it's something that I'm interested in. So I did my research on the gut microbiome and looking at how we can use pre and probiotics to support anxiety and how we can use nutrition to support anxiety as well. So it was really interesting. So that was a big turning point when that uni was created and yeah, I was like, that's the place for me. Is that relatively new within the last five to 10 years? Yeah. 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 So it's based in Heidelberg. It's a, it's a private psychology yep. uni yeah. called ISN psychology yeah so do you have to do your psychology degree first to then be able to move into this university yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they do offer um undergraduate now yeah I believe so it's really good that people can move all the way through it but yeah. I went to two different unis and sort of changed over once they were created so that was a really that I was really glad to go there. Yeah, it seems like it was fit, a fit made in heaven. Yeah. When you're thinking about psychology and nutrition, because I think that we're super interested in this topic and something that we think just makes perfect sense, but I don't necessarily see this spoken about much online in the psychology realm. Mm. And I'd love to know what some of the clients that present to you, mm. what kind of recommendations you see occurring over and over and over again in terms of changes that they can make to their diet to actually improve their mental health. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's not spoken about enough. And I think we're starting to see it come out in the research a lot more, which is so wonderful. Mm. The main thing that the research suggests is whole foods. Just yeah. more whole foods, like plant-based foods that are food, basically. Yeah. Mm. We see so many processed foods on the market these days and our bodies weren't designed to break them down, mm. but breaking down whole foods is really, really good for our gut and eating a diverse range of whole foods is really, really good for our gut microbiome and then our mental health. Are there any reoccurring kind of deficiencies that you've seen a clear link, for example, low omega-3 status or zinc and things like that that are kind of, you know, every second client is kind of having similar themes with? Yeah, yeah. I have a naturopath on our team so she can do those sorts yeah. of tests and look at deficiencies and explore all those different kinds of things but the main ones we see in mental health are zinc omega-3s um, your b vitamins all those different iron kinds. for women as well yeah iron is a main one yeah um, sometimes with low iron we need to do a bit more investigating because it can mean that your gut microbiome is impacted in some way or your gut lining isn't intact yeah and your iron's seeping out somewhere so yeah. there's so much more we can look at when someone has low iron. But yeah, How that is cool. A big one. Mm. So does this obviously connect into anxiety within women? 
Yeah, right. Explain a little bit about that because I know our listeners are going to freaking love Absolutely. this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So anxiety is a really big one when we are feeling anxious. I'm not sure how much you know about the nervous system, mm. but our sympathetic nervous system is activated. Fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. fight or flight response. And that helps us survive. It helps us have that energy, that big rush, and that's what that anxiety feeling is. Mm. When our body does that, all our nutrients get diverted into systems that help us survive. So they're not going to creating better moods for us in those moments. Our body isn't thinking, I need to be happy and I need to not worry about things because that is very, very functional in that moment. Your body needs to worry. So when someone is experiencing more chronic anxiety, that's when we see nutrient deficiencies because your body is in that fight or flight stage and it's using those nutrients for other systems rather than nourishing your body and creating serotonin because that's where we get serotonin from. We get it from our food and tryptophan, I'm not sure if you know about it, that is a precursor to serotonin and we get it from our food and when it's being used in other ways, it's not being used to make us feel good. When you spoke at the start of the episode about, was it somatic um, healing, different techniques to do with anxiety? What does that actually look like? Yeah, it really differs on the person. I suppose I work a lot in the trauma space and there's lots of really wonderful research and some really good books that suggest that trauma is stored in our body. Yeah. Isn't it that book, um, Your Body Keeps a Score, yeah. is it? I haven't read it yet, but everyone oh, recommends it. It's phenomenal. It's such a good book. His um, Bessel's work was really pivotal, mm. I think, and it got a lot of people thinking about it really differently. And I think it just really solidified what people were seeing in their clinics as well and with clients. Mm. People might have a sensation in their body if they experience anxiety or if they've been through trauma, there might be a particular area of their body where they hold it and somatic-based techniques can help you really identify it and release it. Mm. Is this along the same lines? Because I've heard of people presenting with a certain sickness and then when they go through kind of facing, whether it be you know, doing some inner children work or whether it be facing whatever the trauma it is, that, that those symptoms go away. Yeah. Uh, what is the actual research show about that because I know in principle it makes sense but I'd love to know what diving a bit deeper what that actually means. Yeah it's so interesting when you witness it with your clients because it's amazing and it's such a privilege doing that work. Mm. I suppose the hard thing is with the research is it's more case studies so it's harder to do it on a larger scale because we don't have the same person going through the same thing storing it in the same area of their body so Mm. It's really a case-by-case basis. What are some of the healing techniques that you use in practice regularly? Yeah, I love doing inner child work. I think it's really interesting. And it's just amazing seeing people connect to themselves. I really like getting people to come back home to their bodies and just be back in their bodies. So many people live out of their bodies and don't even realise it they're on that autopilot mode just going through the motions of the day and they don't have that awareness of what's going on in their body or they just don't have time to be mm. use a lot of ba- a lot of mindfulness based techniques as well yeah. i think they're really what wonderful. are your like top two mindfulness 
tips that you would use if you can tell us yeah no I love mindfulness I think meditation is a really good yeah. one I think going into meditating and a meditative practice people really need to check their expectations as well because I think so often people go into it and they go well I can't clear my mind like that's just ridiculous but that's not the goal of meditation yeah and we really need to check those expectations before we start practicing those things if you were to give someone because I know that a lot of people would have resistance to meditation especially if they're always like go 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 mm. and then telling them to slow down it would kind of sound like the worst thing ever <laughs> as we're basically talking about ourselves <laughs> but essentially if you were to say to someone who feels that way and has that initial resistance what would be some good tips to just start yeah guided guided mindfulness yeah. guided yeah. meditation all meditation is is just having an anchor back to the present moment mm -hmm. and if you have someone's voice being able to guide you through that when you catch yourself drifting off or feeling busy you can just bring yourself back to that anchor which is that person's voice and that's all mindfulness and meditation is yeah meditation for me I don't know if you've tried meditation Gem I'm assuming I've you listened have to yeah meditation, meditation before but not enough consistently mm. yeah. I always found it so so hard so my brain is always busy but when I was taught to meditate I say in quotations mm. I was taught that you're meant to silence the voices in your head or like the noise in your head so for me, every time I did it, I would come out of meditation being like, well, I just failed at that because my brain's not fucking quiet. Mm. And then I had resistance to wanting to do meditation again. Mm. And I always found it really hard. Like it was like an uphill battle. And then I remember I was in Bali. I think yeah. you were in Bali. Yeah, we were together. We spoke about this. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Nadia. Shout yeah. out to Nadia yeah, if she's yeah. listening Shout to, out to this. Nadia. Um, yeah. About meditation not being that you need to quiet all the noise in your head. You just need to be able to redirect your focus and yeah. notice that, okay, cool that thought's coming up, what can I do to redirect it back to either my breath or the guided meditation or whatever you're doing? Yeah. And that was pivotal for me because I was like, meditation is so hard. Like I cannot do it. And then you kind of feel a bit like a failure in this like yeah. loop cycle. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. The thing that I really enjoyed that I tried was actually just thinking, okay, I'm squeezing my toes and then I'm working up my body and I'm squeezing my hands and releasing. And because mm -hmm. I had something to focus on, I was able to then kind of not be darting around with so many thoughts I could just bring it back as you said to your body and that was the most useful form of meditation for me when I have tried it yeah mm. yeah that's amazing that you had those experiences and that's why I think it's always important to check people's expectations because you don't want to set them up to feel frustrated every time they practice yeah and it's not like oh you've never meditated now be quiet for 45 minutes it's not really, <laughs> it's not, we're kind of going from zero to hero here. I yeah. feel like giving people some actual actionable steps, mm. guided meditation, you know, seeing a psychologist if they can, seeing you. Otherwise, there are other guided meditations I know on Spotify and things like that you can listen to. Is there any guided meditations that you recommend? I was using Headspace for a little bit because you could time it. And for me, I could only do three minutes. I think I got up to seven. Which and I'm then, proud of you. confession, guys, I haven't meditated in a hot second. Anyways. <laughs> But I got up to about seven minutes, but That's I could amazing. only start with three. Because originally I was like, I'm going to do half an hour. <laughs> That's Set issue. yourself up to fail. That's probably because we don't have anything, if we don't speak about this enough, like what it actually looks like in actionable yeah. ways. We kind of are comparing ourselves to maybe someone we follow who meditates, medita for, an meditates yeah. for an hour. Maybe they've been doing it for seven years. Like we actually don't know. So I think it's actually a really good conversation to have. Just like start with three minutes, mm. start with an Absolutely. app, start with an easy way and then ease into it from there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Headspace is a wonderful one. Insight timers, the one yeah. I like to use. I think that's really good and you can set little timers and find 
guided ones depending on your level of experience. Mm. Those are the two best ones. But there's so many out there. There's so many on YouTube as well. You just have to really find what works for you. How about breath work? Mm. So breath work has become like a pretty big, I want to say trend. I don't think it is a trend. I think it will stay around for a long time. But it is very much trending across social media, people doing their cold dips, doing their breath work, doing their meditation, their journaling. Do you recommend breath work or are you more meditation journaling as the first protocol? I think breath work's wonderful. Yep. I introduce breath work a lot to my clients. Mm. Similar sort of thing, you really need to check your level of experience because there's breathing techniques that can exacerbate our anxiety and there's breathing techniques that can really bring us down. Yeah. Breathing is part of that nervous system and that's one thing that we can control mm. in certain settings. So it can be a really powerful tool. When we talk about breath work, as in I'd imagine as exacerbating it would be of breathing heavy, not mm. controlling it. Yeah. Are you thinking more along the lines of like box breathing, if someone was to do it themselves where they're yeah. counting to a certain tempo, is that what you'd recommend? Yeah, box breathing's a really wonderful place to start. If you feel like you're in more an anxious or a panic state, box breathing isn't going to be so great. You don't want to be holding your breath in those moments because that signals to your body that we maybe have oxygen, we maybe don't when we're going through those holds and then breathing. So it's really good to practice outside of those times, but a really good one to practice during those times is a longer exhale because that signals to our body that we're safe and we have enough oxygen. Wow. I love that. Yeah. That's that's something I didn't know because I always thought when I'm feeling a bit anxious or a little bit rattled about something, I'm like, oh, just box breathe. And I'll hold my breath for four seconds, but that's probably not doing any good. Yeah, it can be helpful, but there's better alternatives. Yeah, so longer exhales. Longer exhales. Longer exhales. How long would you recommend? It really depends on what you're comfortable with, but aiming for six. Yep. So maybe breathing in for four and then exhaling for six. You just want to make sure that that exhale is longer. Yeah. That's a a great little takeaway. There's going to be so many nuggets (laughs) from this episode, but that's going to be one that I'm sure our listeners are going to love as well. Um, I wanted to move into more questions along the lines of stress Mm -hmm. because I know that that's something that you have a lot of, you know, your clients presenting with. Are there any kind of top techniques that you would recommend alongside mindfulness Um, or lifestyle interventions and changes that can help manage and reduce our stress. And I also just wanted to touch on the importance of reducing our stress because stress is just a topic, an umbrella, but I don't think Mm. we often until we get sick or until it's a little bit too late that we realise, oh, actually, it all comes back to this root cause of being stressed. Mm. And with stress, sorry, I'm just jumping in really very quickly. I think we could also have a cool conversation around boundary setting Mm. and maybe give our listeners some good little tips and nuggets around setting boundaries, reducing stress, work, life, friendships, all the things. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about stress and even anxiety, it's a very similar thing that's happening in our nervous system. They're there for a reason and they help us survive. So stress and anxiety aren't always bad but when they are chronic, that's when it really, really impacts us. And when we're staying in that fight or flight or even a freeze zone for a longer time, that's when it gets overwhelming and our body can't cope. What have you seen as uh, typically the symptoms of being in that chronic state of stress? Mm, Just really, really heightened, unable to relax. Your mind's always racing. 
you might have sweating or those somatic-based symptoms that accompany presentation in females. There's lots of gut issues that mm. accompany that presentation as well. I was going to ask um, stress and IBS-related symptoms and massive. the link there. Yeah, huge. Yeah. yeah, massive. So what happens when you're stressed or even you're anxious, the blood flow shuts off mm. to your gut and your digestive organs because in that moment you're not thinking about eating and digesting food you're thinking about surviving and escaping from the stressor or whatever whatever is mm. making you feel stress so that's what happens in IBS that gut is really impacted and it's not it's not active mm. it just switches off and that's where we really see those IBS like symptoms particularly in females how interesting mm. I think I've never had it explained that way. I know that it makes yeah. perfect sense. You, you're focusing just on surviving. You're in a heightened state. You're in a sympathetic state. But just actually thinking of it as to how that would all connect and why you'd want to manage that, especially if you're dealing with that and really struggling with those symptoms, yeah. kind of all just comes back to the job, the you know family life, the whatever else you're dealing with. Like it's always just going to link back to whatever it is you're probably avoiding. Yeah, absolutely. So when we are in those states, it's really helpful if we can to complete the stress cycle and allow our body to, you know, it releases adrenaline, cortisol for a reason. It's great to allow our body to just have its moment and just move through that. But sometimes that's not always possible and we need to just get out of that stressed or anxious state if we're presenting or, you know, we're doing a talk, public speaking or something like that. We really just want to shut that off. Yeah. Breathing is a wonderful tool for that. But then long-term managing our stress levels, exercise yeah. is a great one. Nutrition, mindfulness. I love that you said exercise yes. in that. <laughs> I fucking love that. This is something that we live and breathe. Yeah. But we, and we always try to communicate to people, it's so much more than just exercising because you want a good rig. Exercising yeah. because you want to change how you look. That is just such a minutia benefit if that's what you're going for. We're always bringing it back to the fact that we feel better and we we function better and our moods have better. have more energy. We're not bloated all the time. We're not constipated. Mm. All the other things that kind of come along with it. But I think a lot of people get into their health and fitness journey solely focusing on the physical thing. Mm. Okay, how am I going to look? Will I look better naked? Am I going to be leaner? Is my booty going to grow? Whatever it is. Yeah. It's actually coming back to can I manage my stress? Am I managing my gut my gut relationship, my gut health relationship, <laughs> and all the other things that come along with it? So it's really cool that you mentioned exercise in that. Yeah, exercise is a massive one. It's yeah. so important for our mental health and managing our stress levels. When you have clients that you make that recommendation for, you know, walking more and I'm assuming nutrition and then exercise, what are the typical recommendations you would make to just somebody coming in and wanting to improve their stress levels? Just start. Yeah. Just start. It doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to get in the gym and do a 45-minute workout or you don't have to do a massive HIIT workout or something like that. It can be five squats while you're doing your teeth. Yeah. yeah. Something so, so simple. I love that. Five squats while yeah. you're brushing your I teeth. I love that. That is so simple <laughs> but so effective. Getting you out of your head and into your body. I love that. And just start. I, I think the, the best thing that you've said is just, just start with something. I think that if you build up in your head that you need to make these extreme changes going from not training to training five days a week, going from not training to doing a class, 
double sessions. It's just not sustainable and also not what we're promoting either. Mm. It's whatever you can sustain. Yeah. I love that you're about that. It's yeah. very good. I also had a question just leaning on, um, you mentioned classes and something I've seen quite a lot of happen in the last two to three years is kind of a bit of a shift away from typically just smashing your body in a hit class, for example, and looking at more gentle ways to move your body. I myself have moved through doing that and moving into the space that I now love, live and breathe being in the gym. But I wanted to know your thoughts on if you've seen people who are overtraining in a class setting and if you have any opinions or um, recommendations on what you know what you think you should do instead. Yeah. It's it's common. Yeah. Seeing people overtrain. But it's really not great for your body. And you would probably know that seeing it with clients, it really impacts that stress response even. That's something that can contribute to making it a chronic thing. If your body is constantly using those resources, it gets overwhelmed. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, having a combination of classes, so having classes where you slow down and you focus on activation, whether it be Pilates or something like that, is really, really wonderful to combine with your strength workouts and things like that. It's good to have a combined approach and that really holistic approach to exercise. Yeah. I love that so much because there's such I, a big thing. Yeah. It's like Pilates versus weights, Pilates versus cardio, cardio versus weights. Why are we versing each other? Yeah. Why aren't we combining the benefits of all of them? Because that's going to make us a more, more rounded athlete. Kate's, <laughs> Kate's in her athlete era. Hybrid love athlete. Hybrid athlete. <laughs> I love that. But it's, always but it's the true. Way. And yeah. it's also like managing your stress and everything, overdoing it in anything we know can be bad for your mental health or detrimental to your mental health. Same with exercise, with work, with social settings, everything. So I'd love to know boundary setting. Yeah. I'm really on my boundaries at the I moment. I love that. I'm a hybrid athlete, boundary setting queen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would love to know. For anyone that's listening who potentially struggles with setting boundaries, what would be your first point of call to kind of set your boundaries but then stick to your boundaries as well? Mm, I love boundaries. Mm. <laughs> They're so good. They can just be used in so many different settings. Mm. I suppose when we're talking about stress and things like that, work emails, just get them off your phone. Yes. Just remove access. That can be a really good boundary to set with yourself. It's going to feel uncomfortable to start off with. I think managing those expectations around that when you do start setting boundaries. And just, I always use this quote, particularly when you're setting with boundaries with other people, is the only people who benefit from you not having boundaries is the people who, oh, hang on, I've messed it up. <laughs> no, I know right. where you're going. Take two. Take two. <laughs> the only people who benefit benefited from you not having boundaries was oh, the people who it. were used to overstepping them that's it yeah, yeah. I, I knew where you <laughs> were going with that going. as well I was like it makes sense to me yeah no 100 percent. but that's right they're the only people yeah yeah and that's a really big one when you're setting boundaries with other people it feels uncomfortable mm. to start off with but if you set boundaries with yourself it's going to be a lot easier to manage other people's expectations of what they've been used to taking from you in the past. Yeah. I once got taught this little trick 
I can't remember who who from, so I'm just plagiarising someone else's words, but bear with me for a second. This is not a quote by Kate Morris, okay? (laughs) But try setting boundaries when you're starting to set boundaries and it might feel like a very uncomfortable thing. Start setting them with people you you know and trust. So, for example, if I'm just going to use you, Gemma, sorry. For example, Gemma was calling calling me... (laughs) <laughs> you know, I was going to say calling. <laughs> Gemma was calling me five times a day, for example. I wasn't. She wasn't, no. but this is an example. Yes. Calling me five times a day, I could say to her, like, I only want you to call me two times a day. And then it's up to me to not answer those phone calls outside that two times. But I feel comfortable in that space to set that boundary with that friend. Yeah. Is that a good place to start? That's a wonderful place to start, starting with safe people mm. that you feel like you're comfortable with and they will respect your boundaries. Yeah. I also think finding and holding people close to you and giving access to people that will respect your boundaries. Not everyone has to have that access. You're not going to be able to please everybody, but that's also okay. You don't need to. I think that's also really important to touch on because it may feel uncomfortable, but you're not necessarily losing something that you want to have anyway if it means that it's at the expense of your own mental health. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's where we really need to get clear on who someone is as a person and what they really value in life and how we align boundaries to their values. And it might look like disappointing other people and that's totally okay. But if you've grown up in a family where you were taught to please everyone else and you know other people could never be disappointed in you, it's gonna feel uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. I wanna circle back. We're jumping all over the place today, but I have so many questions. <laughs> I wanna circle back to the nutrition and gut health and nutrition and mental health for a second, because I think that this is such an interesting conversation. I think we didn't touch enough on it. So I wanna know when somebody comes to you wanting to work on their mental health, their gut health, their nutrition, what is the most common thing you see that people struggle with in terms of their nutrition to begin with? Mm. Is it just eating whole foods like you mentioned before, or is it more, you know, binge eating, struggling with their relationship with food more so? Yeah, there's so many different things and that's why it's important to ask those questions when you do work with someone because it might be a more impulsive binge eating type of presentation. Someone might just have access to too much information and they might be feeling overwhelmed and they might be relying on processed foods because the package tells them that it meets certain criteria and that feels safe for someone. Mm. When we look at whole foods, they don't have those packages to tell us that they're safe foods and have those labels that you know feel comfortable for us so it can feel scary stepping outside of that but I think yeah really starting small with whole foods and introducing them it doesn't have to be anything massive like introduce a carrot your favorite vegetable or something like that just start with one it doesn't have to be a huge week of every single meal is whole foods, everything is clean, everything's organic, all those different kinds of things. That's too many expectations and too many pressures to place on yourself. Just need to start small. I also have a question on that because I feel like everything lands on a spectrum. So when I think of eating healthy and whole foods, I also imagine there being a um, middle ground there where you still have access to having a dinner out and that not being stressful as well because Mm. I feel like everything is dose dependent and as long as the majority of your meals were whole foods then you're doing really well especially if you're going from not doing that to doing that Mm -hmm. but have you also seen that potentially there is room for people going too far where they start to demonize certain things because 
in the land and you know the landscape of social media, I feel like there's a lot of um, loud voices with strong opinions that are very black and white. Mm -hmm. And I always foresee that that can be damaging on the other end of the spectrum because then people are afraid to eat bread, for yeah. example. They're afraid to eat a meal out or they don't want to eat any chemical. And then in my head, I'm thinking everything is made up of a chemical in a way. Everything has a breakdown. It's the extremes. Do you see that end of that happening as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we really idolise that end of the spectrum and it looks really good. And, you know, we really need to check those expectations about what actually makes us feel good. And chances are that end of the spectrum isn't going to be, it's not living. Mm. You know, it might be to some people and that's totally okay. But it's not it's not practical for a lot of people and that's totally okay. But a lot of that would come down to control as well because you could be potentially thinking that you're doing, you know, eating really clean, being really strict, but then in a sense you're just finding another way to control yourself. And something that I loop back to is social health mm. is a part of mental health. And if your food restriction is going to the, the level where you're not enjoying a meal out or able to relax in those settings, then we're missing out on a core component of what actually helps us thrive in a community. Yeah, you're exactly spot on there. Mm. I think you said it so beautifully. And if you're eating at that end of the spectrum and it's making you stressed, like it's probably doing more harm than it is good. How would you coach someone or what kind of tips and tricks would you give someone who doesn't really know or isn't as in tune, in quotations, with their body as you would expect them to be or want them to be. So for example, let me kind of clarify what I mean. Somebody comes to you eating a lot of processed foods, but they don't see an issue with it. They're sleeping okay, they feel okay. Maybe they're super stressed, but they're not understanding that it's related to what they're actually eating. How would you highlight that to them mm. and potentially get them to move into something more sustainable and more balanced? Yeah, it's a really good question. We just need to slow down a little bit and really start cultivating some of those practices where people are able to turn in mm -hmm. and develop that sense of introspection. That might have served a big purpose for some people, tuning out of their bodies and not being in tune with them for a long, long time. And that's where we might need to do some deeper work and figure out what is the root cause of that. And that's a really big part of the work as well. Just looking at when I talk about stress and things like that, we always hear the term, you know, you can't pour from an empty bucket. Yeah. But you also can't pour from a bucket that's holy. If you're filling it up with all these different kinds of things, but there's holes in the bottom of it, you need to patch those holes first before you start filling it up. And I think that's really something that I try and work by as well, that we need to look at those deeper things that are going on for someone as I well. That. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that was, I love that analogy. Definitely know that we've got multiple mic drop moments this episode. Yeah, there's lots of am, nuggets in you're here. You're an amazing guest. I'm just going to say that again. Um, I wanted to loop into something that I've seen quite a lot of at the moment, and I wanted to know if it's just because of TikTok and social media, or if you've actually seen an increased prevalence of people presenting with wanting to be diagnosed or with ADHD. So whether they have seen people post these are the symptoms and they're relating to that, or whether they've always had kind of underlying things that they've wanted to get some advice on are you in clinic seeing that as well mm, yeah definitely I think particularly in females there's yeah. a, a lot more empowerment in diagnosing 
ADHD in females at the moment. We're seeing a lot more people feel informed, mm. but it's really important to make sure you're getting that information from the correct sources because there is a lot out there that is just talking mm. about the natural human experience and it might not necessarily be ADHD. But I'd love to talk about that point as well. What would you you're going to have a distinct line in the sand between the natural human experience and ADHD symptoms. Where would you draw that line? Yeah, it, ADHD is a really broad presentation. We have more the inattentive type, which is what females typically present with more. And that's why they sort of fly under the radar because they're that quieter presentation. Whereas in boys, it's more that hyperactive, impulsive presentation. And they're a lot more overt in their behaviours and they're the ones that generally get picked up in the schooling system because they're disrupting other people in the classroom. So when we look at childhood, the rate of diagnosis is, I think it's every for every two boys that get diagnosed, it's one girl that gets diagnosed. But then as we're moving into adulthood now and we're seeing more females get diagnosed, it it's slowly moving to one-to-one. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How interesting is that? It's so interesting. It's funny because when I think back to primary school, I did not have any female friends that were diagnosed with ADHD or mm. ADD, but I had a lot of males in my classroom and, like, I remember them being disruptive yeah. and being diagnosed with it, but females, absolutely not. But now I see a very big wave of women, maybe even just having feeling like they have the power to speak up and actually seek help, which is obviously incredible. But a lot, of, a lot more women are being more mindful of it or seeking a diagnosis, which is, I guess, kind of cool. But also, in the same breath, make sure it's from a credible source. Yeah. 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 And the ADHD diagnostic process is quite long. Yeah. And it can be quite exhausting for people. And it can really turn people off seeking help, which is so awful. Mm. But I think we're seeing a lot more practitioners feel more comfortable with ADHD, particularly in females as well, which is really good to see. Mm. And it is slowly getting better. I think it being a one-to-one ratio, eventually, whether it's boys being diagnosed in childhood or women later in life, I think acknowledging that that exists is also really interesting as well, because I think if you see stuff online and you maybe thinking, oh, I don't actually have that or I do, knowing that that is, is a real thing, that there is that trend of later in life or earlier in life and there are resources out there. What would you say to someone, because when I've spoken to clients, particularly who have said, I think I might have ADHD, but the process and the barrier is the cost, the time and getting into a psychologist. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who is struggling with those barriers but wants to get the right information? Are there any free resources or places to start that you could recommend? Yeah, there are a couple. I'll give them to you guys so you can put them in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but there's some really wonderful ADHD boards that have been put together with some of that extra information. But a psychologist or a psychiatrist who specialises in ADHD is probably going to be your best bet. Yeah. Because it is such a broad presentation, you really want to see how it's presenting for you. I wonder... Um, I wonder in terms of the research because obviously like we're speaking about boys being diagnosed younger I wonder if we'll start to see research moving forward of women being diagnosed younger as well now Mm. or if it'll still be that presentation of like boys being disruptive girls not being and then it'll be a later in life or if it will kind of balance out as the years roll on Mm. 
Yeah. Now that we're starting to see lots of females getting diagnosed, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it will be really interesting to watch. I think we're getting better at it, mm. picking up on it in children. But when females are diagnosed later in life, it's generally when there's an extra demand placed on their executive functioning. Yeah. So a really common time is when females become mums. Wow, how interesting. That is amazing. Mm. I love that. Mm. When you... Um, have you know someone who's going through the system and you're speaking to them and they've been diagnosed with ADHD I'd love to just touch on what you know two or three of the uh, sorry treatment options are typically look like yeah there's so many different treatment options that we can use these days there's the obvious pharmaceutical one some people really love going down the pharmaceutical route other people not so much that's something where we need to involve a psychiatrist for and talk to them and they work with your GP as well yeah. to talk about that. There's really wonderful research now to suggest that our gut microbiome all links. <laughs> I love <laughs> so it, we linking love it back. We love it. <laughs> <Link> it back. <laughs> the state of our gut microbiome can really influence someone's presentation of ADHD as well. Wow. So someone can go down the route of doing a gut microbiome map and looking at their particular bacteria mm. and their makeup in their microbiome as well. So if I wanted to do that, for example, or any of the listeners listening wanted to do that, where would you go and get that test done? Would that be through a naturopath or would that be through a psychologist, more so a naturopath? Yeah. And naturopath. then referred to a psychologist if need be to do with mental health, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Naturopaths are really wonderful at that. If they're skilled in that area, it's important to ask questions and see if gut health is a big area of focus for them before you go down that route because it is expensive, it's costly. Yeah but it's, it can be really insightful for people. How amazing. Mm. Well, I think we're gonna wrap up today's episode. You gave us so <laughs> much and thank you so much for coming along. Driving from Inverloch, we're so grateful. <laughs> what a queen. It was so fun. Queen Before energy. we wrap up, let our listeners know where they can find you, how they can work with you. If you're taking on clients, yeah. go for it. I'm actually one of the psychologists who doesn't have a waiting list at the moment, which is so rare at the moment. So I have a clinic called Wellness Avenue and we take clients on through there. And then I have a professional Instagram called at Megan the Psych that people can follow me on. Everybody has to follow her. Everyone does. <laughs> We're going to leave all of your information yeah. in the show notes anyways. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.